All right. <laughs> My parents are bred. <laughs> it's a Batman origin story we're watching today, right? Um, what, that's a much different Batman that comes out of this movie, isn't it? Uh, well, since it's anti-trash and we're watching the four greatest movies of all time, as according to Sight and Sound's Critics Bowl, um, I thought it only appropriate that we talk about some one-star reviews of Tokyo Story. Oh, do give me some one-stars. I, 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 I can sympathize with some one-stars. You know sure, sure. I, uh, I initially had went to Google, and there weren't a ton of negative reviews on Google for this, and mm-hmm. I was kind of surprised. Um, so I'm going to go to Letterboxd. Um, here's one, though, from Google real quick. It says, if you like this and think it's good, you are pretentious and delusional. Mm. This was the most boring movie I have ever seen. More explosions would have helped, huh? This is a year before Godzilla. So we're yeah. on we're on. But after track. Godzilla minus one, I think. I'm not sure about the timeline. Is Godzilla minus one a prequel? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's fun. I need to go see it. Yeah. It's good. Let's go. I've heard great things. I, I would have went with you this week if someone would come to the city and Man, have I could, talked to I, me. I, I have things happening in my life. <laughs> yeah, you're listening to this, I and it's a don't. new year, but we are deep in the Christmas glut. As yeah, it were. we're still, we're not even in Christmas. Well, no, we're trying to survive. Um, this is sort of the the podcast holiday party in many ways. In many ways, it's a day day record. We yep. got coffee, we got cookies, we had gifts, we had games. It really is truly a holiday party. It is, yeah. It's a Christmas miracle. Don't waste your time going to watch this film. Just stay at home and stare at the wall. It will be more exciting. <laughs> what? Was that was that also a Google? Yeah, that was also a Google. How are you? Of course, you're going to stay at home and watch it. It's a 60 year old film. Where? Okay. I'm, now I'm splitting it'll hairs. It'll play at your repertory, your museum of I modern arts kind of places. I guess that's yeah. fair. All right, now we're jumping over to Letterboxd, so you can find these people. I'm not going. I'm not going to out anybody. I'm not going to dox any uh, of these one star well, reviews. I, I might. I don't know. Okay, I won't. Sorry, but I don't get the massive love for this movie. It was incredibly boring with irritating editing that made it look like they would say one line of dialogue, then cut. Not my kind of movie. Okay. Fair. Fine. (laughs) (laughs) You got got a pretty good one? I'm ready. I'm ready. (laughs) Worst Father's Day movie ever. That's so funny. (laughs) Disagree. If if it were... (laughs) Uh, this film is a true testament to the power of cinema to be extremely lame and boring. <laughs> <laughs> Happy in the first half. Dot, dot, dot. Well, had them in the first half, but not the seconds where it starts cooking. What is he talking about? No, that's the about? meme, right? Have you seen the gif of uh, the, yeah. the heavy in the first half? Sure, 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 about sure. The, It's usually a setup in a tweet or something where the first half is like, oh, okay, and then it drastically yeah. changes like direction the, like the horse drawing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So, yeah sure um nice quiet film perfect for a little snooze uh woke up in time to see the kids or buttholes to their parents <laughs> i mean they got the movie at least yeah uh one out of five poor uh rationale by the time i sat down to write my review of tokyo story a little over a year had passed since i watched it I couldn't recall many specifics about the movie at that point, but I know I didn't care for it at all. It actually took me two attempts to finish the movie because I was just not into it the first time. I get that. Yeah. I'm I'm somewhat sympathetic to that. Same. I had to watch it in two sittings. I'm very sympathetic to that. I find the issue of trying to review a movie a year after the fact. I think that is. At that point, you just got to rewatch the thing. Yeah. Disingenuous. Yeah. Yeah. There's a moral. Oh, I really thought about it for a year. Okay. No, you didn't. No. You gave it one star and said I'm you barely remember it. I'm giving myself plenty of time. We're going to start watching movies a year out for the genre cast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my gosh. <laughs> this December, we're going to talk about Gran Turismo again. Please, no. 
Like watching paint dry, simplistic ham-fisted life lessons dealt through totally uninteresting characters and a pointless storyline. You don't get the point. What What is the point? Why are we here? Why are we here? Hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Good Trash Genrecast. We gather around a table. We discuss the films you don't normally discuss in a film science course, unless you happen to be tuning in in the month of January, and that is the month in which we do anti-trash. Uh, the Professor Arthur Gordon has selected for us... A delightful, am I loud? Sorry. Yeah, you're loud uh, for Dalton. Uh, I might. Just, uh, is it just for me? Okay. Yeah. As, as, as selected for us, a uh, set of movies from the BFI Top 250, the uh, one, two, three, and four uh, most popular films of all, or greatest, not most popular, greatest. This is the greatest films of all time. Greatest films of all time. Number four is Tokyo Story, directed by Yajiro Ozu. Now, uh, Dustin, can you explain the relationship between the Sight and Sound magazine and the BFI form? Is it just, is Sight and Sound just the BFI's Sight, magazine? Sight and Sound is BFI's magazine. Okay. No. It is a publication yeah. of the British Film Institute. Gotcha. Um, I could probably look this up. I now have a subscription. I'll send you copies. Do you nice. recall when does this poll start? Oh, that's a good question. I want to say in the 80s, but I don't want to be held to that. Um, but I don't think it's that new. I mean, but, and I'm saying the 80s as though that's not that long ago, which was 40 some odd years ago now at this point. But um, this is where he has an existential crisis <laughs> on air. I, well, Osu puts me in that space anyway. But it has been going on for a handful of decades at this point. And it's a decade, every decade poll. So every 10 years. In, in the, every 10 years. Much so like it, the Creeper from Jeepers Creepers. In the every two 10 years. years. So I want to say it's 82, 92, 2002, 2012, 2022 are the years that they've had the poll. But that doesn't even seem like that's enough time. There might be even 72 as well. I'm not sure. And this is voted on by critics every 10 years since 1952. Really? Since yeah. 52? Well, good yeah. for them. And then they started doing the director's poll. Um, I, I think 2012 wasn't the first year, but that was might have been one of the first years. Because mm -hmm. the yeah, critics was fairly recent. The I director's think. poll is newer than the critics poll. Yeah. And I read a little think piece on that not too long ago from Nick James at Sight and Sound. He was just talking about how um, filmmakers have a different kind of taste when it comes to movies. Oh, Be definitely. Sure, um, because sure. critics are going to think about influence. They're going to think about canonicity. They're going to think about the movies that stick with people over time. And filmmakers are going to be thinking about those which are... What was cool. What, what was cool, what was inspirational <laughs> Yeah. Of style, and they do have a bit more recency bias yep. um, because they are um, by necessity needing to be in the ebb and flow of what's happening now, and so uh, it does kind of change things up a little bit there. And uh, you know, for various reasons. So if you go to Sight and Sound right now, and uh, you know, went to the website, and I don't think this is behind the paywall, but I'm not entirely sure. But if you went there and looked at the recent directors' polls, you would definitely see much more popularity, and they do a good job of letting you see individual directors' ten lists. And this is the That's other really interesting cool. thing. I about love it when those come out. The poll itself, and I think we might have talked about this in our year of lists a couple years ago in the summer uh, when we did our top 100s ourselves, that um, the way the sight and sound poll works is every contributor, whether they're a director or a filmmaker or, whatever, or a critic or whatever, is they just list their top 10 movies. Mm -hmm. And if you're on the list, you get one vote. And so even if a movie came in at number 10 for you, it's a vote. It's a vote. Yeah. If it came in at number one for you, it's a vote. So it's more about appearances across lists rather than right. ranking on a list. Correct. Right. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. Uh, so Tokyo Story ranks number four on the critics list, but also is tied for fourth on the director's list. Is it? Yeah, with, that makes sense. Um, I have it pulled up 
right here uh, alongside uh, Gene Dillman, which okay. we're going to be talking about in a couple of weeks. Which is number one now, yeah. Uh, on the critics poll. Mm-hmm. Now, the ones that are on the director's top four that are not in the critics' top four are interesting. It's uh, Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather and Stanley Kubrick's 2001. Which makes mm-hmm. sense. Sort of classic director's yeah. movie. Yeah, they definitely. are very much director's movies, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, and that's, you know, I, I do really always enjoy hearing filmmakers talk about mm this sort of thing because they usually it's like we talked about this a long time ago but kind of notably you've referenced Quentin Tarantino putting um uh Lone Ranger on one of his year in lists mm-hmm. one year right yeah. like there there are things filmmakers notice that critics don't tend to notice that, and Quentin's not often right but he's correct in this case I know you you're a big fan of Lone Ranger we I really watched am. it he's a big fan we of actual on the show some Army point. Hammer yeah he's <laughs> a big fan of his work that is not the point <laughs> he loves cannibals um but yeah I mean this is the list right I mean mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. has somehow dictated film taste for 70 years what has yeah. greater Ish. objectivity I think because of its size of a pool and the uh, the, the types of um, people that is asking the questions about in case you were wondering for uh, the 2022 critics lists uh, there were 1639 participating critics programmers curators archivists and academics uh, the director's list was uh, 480 directors and filmmakers so some some you know kind of a sample size for mm-hmm. you there in case you were wondering. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think it really is kind of the best gauge of where, um, movie is in relationship to the Canon. Yeah. I, I think it's a very, very good indicator. I think and it, there's about a, I'd say a hundred to 110 critics who have put Tokyo story on their list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. It's interesting to me that the AFI list is number one, so much more committed to being American centric and less being uh, interested in a survey of world film like the BFI list is. Is the American Film Institute? It is. Yeah. But you know, the BFI could just as easily be you know the British, the British Film, film Institute. or English not language. I guess yeah, there's not there aren't British movies worth talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, there, there, there are. There are two fifty. It's the early probably, works of but, David Lee to the early works of Hitchcock and then Powell and Pressburger. Uh, wow, and Edgar, Steve yeah, Edgar Wright is like <laughs> just felt a pain in his chest. <laughs> like, oh, what? <laughs> Paging Danny Boyle, Paging yeah, yeah. Danny Boyle. <sighs> we need his opinion on something. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> He's the, not making the production the list. team behind um, uh, Secret of Kells and all that. There's there's good stuff coming out of the UK. Steve Are the Irish Irishmen- <laughs> Whoa, dang! You know what? <laughs> there's BFI money. That's a good point, bro. Go in Ireland. Uh, well, no, there's BFI money in the production. That's a co-production. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. But yeah, they're the, you know, obviously there's Northern Ireland, but I think Ireland has obviously its own film. Just office. kidding. I love the British. No, you don't. And that's okay. <laughs> Arthur's new bit is being as anti-British as I used to be anti-Japanese. Speaking of, Speaking of let's this, get back on topic. <laughs> let's talk about this Japanese movie. In case you're tuning in for the very first time, this is an analysis show, not a review show. We will do some review. We already did some reading of some fun reviews of this film. Uh, and we're going to give our own here in a minute. But we're going to let you know that that's not the uh, bread and butter of what we do around here. What we do is analysis. And of course, analysis requires a text. And that does require spoilers. And so in order to avoid that for listeners who may not have seen the movie, yet. Uh, we do recommend that you do see all the movies that we watch, even when they're bad. Um, we, we always recommend you see things. Um, but what we'll do is we'll do a synopsis, which will, of course, be spoiler-free, just let you know the setup, the premise, if you will, of uh, what the movie's about. Then we'll do a little game called Explain the Syllabus, which might involve thematic spoilers, or it might also involve spoilers of films in its orbit. Then we let a little music play, and then we've gotten down to business. And that business is analysis. And that's when you know 
all spoiler bets are off, and we will talk about how the thing ends. So um, that's your warning, dear listener. Um, Arthur, do you have a synopsis with which to delight us? Uh, yes. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead preemptively uh, for the whole episode to say that if I mispronounce any names, I apologize. I, I don't do well with Japanese names. I, I learned this from watching wrestling. Um, I would read about uh, Japanese wrestlers, uh, and then I'd watch them on TV and realize how bad I butchered the name and found out like three of the seven syllables are actually silent. Mm. Um, so I don't know. And I, I, you know, I can't phonetically go for it, but I'm just going to do what I think is best. Take a stab I, at I'm it. I'm better at Chinese cinema. And so, yeah, same. I don't. This is not my area either. Uh, the elderly Hirayama fa- parents travel from their rural home into Tokyo to see their children and their families. Unfortunately, their children find their stay to be quite inconvenient. That is the movie. Yes. That's it. That is that's it's an inconvenient truth. It, it is an inconvenient. Of parents visiting children. I don't believe we did um, self-identification, so in case you're trying to figure out who's who, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton. And so, Arthur, now that you have given us a synopsis, what do you think of Tokyo Story? Um, I think of Tokyo Story um, that I don't like how... Uh, it makes me think about myself. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I, I think it is kind of in a place like a Citizen Kane and kind of showing my hand there. Um, and that I kind of, I, I very much admire what is going on here. I, I question how I would react to this movie if I didn't know sort of the context of it, considering mm-hmm. it to be one of the greatest films of all time, highly regarded by directors and critics alike. Like if I had went into this cold, no knowledge of who directed it or what it was about, if I would have what kind of response I would have. Cause I think that does kind of paint quite a bit of a picture of expectation of what this movie is. Uh, that being said, um, it is very methodically paced. Some would say slow. I think that's fair, mm-hmm. um, but it is kind of, uh, part of I think one Japanese cinema I think is always very intentionally paced in that way uh, in my experience um, and also as a sort of transcendental reflection on life and family and culture and society uh, I'd seen a number of reviews we didn't read I, you know I was kind of reading a bunch of bad review or not bad but people who had reviewed the film bad uh, low I should say um, and there are several that I read that say um, people from a Western culture may not get it. And I don't think that that's true because no. it's the universality of the story that makes it work. Big time. Because I've been those kids, right? And, you know, parents coming to visit and interrupting life. like, And I get that. And I've also been there uh, when those last visits occurred and I'm not knowing that they were going to be the last time I saw Mm-hmm. those people and the sort of mundanity of that of not real you know we, we always like to think we're gonna have that big moment to say goodbye but it's gone in a blink of an eye kind of a thing right yeah. and, and this captures that essence of all of those different feelings and emotions and just that particular portrait of life and that's i mean and and as watching it i'm just i'm just constantly thinking of my dad and my mom of Mm-hmm. the last time I saw them and you know all of that um and so I, I'm kind of a mixed relationship I, I do like it I can see the appreciation for it um I think it's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing you know for me I, I'd go like four out of five stars mm-hmm. you know it, it didn't get me quite to that kind of next emotional heightened plane uh, that I think a five-star version would do uh, but that's not to say it's bad I, I think it's 
very well put together. Uh, I like that sort of almost point of view shooting he's doing uh, when characters are almost directly addressing the camera, mm-hmm. which again is creating a certain sort of effect and impact of the, audi- the characters speaking directly to the audience. Um, the framing of all that, there are some really fun moments um, when, when, Papa Hirayama uh, decides to go out with his friends. So good. Uh, that leads to some very fun times. Um, them, you know, just kind of exploring this world of Tokyo and then going, you know, and it's, you know, they're just happy to be here. Right. And then again, seeing everybody else being frustrated by their uh, arrival and presence, even though they knew they were coming and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the chore that they've become, the burden that they've become. Right. And, and so, like, I can't speak to the Tokyo culture. I can't speak to the Japanese history of shifting society. And I know that's a part of it as well. Uh, yeah, the post-war era. Yeah, like, I, I don't know that kind of context of it. But I think what works about this movie is that universality of parents and children, of family dynamics, of growing up and growing apart, and all of those relationships and those different parameters and how they shift and shape, um, how they change and shape. And so, yeah, I, I think it is... Uh, a, a good movie. I greatly appreciate it. I don't think I love it, love it, but I can admire what it's doing and respect what it's doing. Very good, very good. What do you say, Dalton? Do you like Tokyo Story? You know, as, as Arthur was talking about, you know, the negative reviews, people are like, oh, you know, if you're a Westerner, maybe I didn't get this, and maybe that you won't get it either because you're a Westerner. And I was just wondering, like, I don't want to make assumptions about people, but I'm like, how much of a life have you lived if you, you can't connect to this movie? Like, how, how many elderly people have you watched come and go through your life? Not even, you know, the the grandparents in this film are not depicted as particularly elderly. They're look likely in their early to mid 60s. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, again, and some people don't go to the movies for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I get that. Not every film viewer is looking to have their life reflected back on them. Um, I don't understand people who are turn your brain off and enjoy the movie folks, but I, I, I understand that that is a point of view. So I, I guess I can kind of see trying to get into this movie because you hear it's one of the greatest films and, and kind of bumping up against it. And as Arthur to Arthur's point, I bumped up against it a little bit. I, like I said, I had to watch in two parts. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to cram the end of the movie because Dustin was coming to pick me up. So I did just, I'm coming right out of my watch. Um, so I skipped about 10 minutes in the third act. Um, so I, I definitely need to take another sit with this one, but I, I really was swept up in how well observed it is and how thoughtful it is about depicting this family. Uh, and I, I do like, I know, you know, obviously the, the camera is not showy. Dustin says there's one camera move in there, which for Ozu is a lot. Apparently I, I never saw it. I mean, it is a locked Is it the down move camera. inside to outside with the grandma and the kid? I actually was looking for it and I didn't notice it. I just, I read that, that, that there is one. That's the most interesting moment to me is uh, grandpa's talking to somebody in the house. They've canceled the trip into the market uh, because doctors got to go do his thing. Mm-hmm. And grandpa looks out the window and we follow the camera out. And I don't, I don't know, it's the way I went to go back and look at it because of the way it, it's so drastically different from the rest of the movie. But he's talking, he looks out the window, and then we are right there with Grandma and the mm. boy. Like, mm-hmm. it's a very interesting how that is so seamless. But mm-hmm. it, it feels like we are, like, in his, in, I don't know, it puts us in a place of, he's talking, and we are mentally going through. Well, that checks out, because, I mean, yeah. obviously, our surrogate is the father, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. or grandfather. Yeah. He is, he's, he, well, he's Ozu's surrogate, but we'll say more about that later. Um, yeah, I... I 
to the point of like how this film is shot and it's it's composition um I do wish I had caught that camera shot. I think Arthur's pulling it up for us right now so we can kind of take it in as we're talking about it. But it, it really is so locked down, and I, I appreciate that more often than not. I think a film we'll talk about later that does this really well is First Reformed. That's uh, also in that transcendental style. But a film that's a, much less in the transcendental style that I still think has some like really great lockdown photography is tar from last year mm-hmm. um, yeah mm-hmm. fields has some really kind of cool compositions that that i was reminded of watching tokyo's story uh there's especially like the shots of homes and the people framed within doorways and then doorways framing the whole family uh just again a lot of cool frames within frames um arthur's talking was talking about the night out that grandpa has with sort of his old buddies and there was a shot there that I really loved of just sort of like an alleyway with a tricycle. Mm. I don't know if you remember that one, but it's just, there's just some some really beautiful shots. And again, it's it's not showy. It is very restrained. But if you're taking the time to really study the image, you're, you're going to find like a lot of joy in the photography of this film, I think. And then again, to to pivot back to sort of what this has to say about life and living and, and growing older, uh, both, you know, growing into adulthood and watching your parents get older and, and, you know, the idea of getting older yourself, I think it has a lot to offer in terms of, you know, that, that study of family dynamics of gerontology and all, all of that stuff. Um, yeah, I, I was very moved by it. The, my, my favorite scene is definitely the sort of closing as close as this movie gets to having a climactic moment is uh, the daughter-in-law, uh, the widow, and um, grandpa are having this kind of conversation about mm-hmm. the family's dynamic, their own personal stuff that they're going through um, at, at that time. And they're, they're just dropping bars. There's just like, so, and again, the translation, you, you, you can only imagine what, what it is in the, the original language, but the translation's pretty good. And you're just like, whoa, you're, they're just being very straight with each other and, and just kind of talking about life is sort of a little disappointing uh, and you're, you're always going to get busier than you thought you were going to get. And you're going to let people kind of fade into your, the background of your life in ways you didn't mean to happen. Um, yeah. I, I am very struck by, by how like just what an astute observation of human life this movie is. And I agree with you, Arthur. I kind of wish I had more context for the Japanese post-war era. Uh, I think this is post occupation. It seems like, cause I know the occupation's only a few years after the war, but obviously there's still the whole army bases in Japan and to this day. And so I, you know, I would, I would be more interested in sort of that, but it, it at the, the thing it does capture is sort of that intergenerational thing that we still have, you know, these are mid century, mid 20th century families dealing with their parents from the early in the century. And now we're, we've sort of have the generational divide of 21st century folks and 20th mm-hmm. century folks. So I think, you know, this is one of those movies. I just, uh, with Alex, we screened uh, Last Man on Earth for our um, down in front screening. And I thought about that film and this film. It's so interesting to watch an older film and see it observe things about the future. And the ways that, you know, uh, as as a John Carpenter tells us in Prince of Darkness, it's interesting how movies can be little messages to the mm-hmm. future. And I, I think this is a really good example of just when you when you well study human behavior on film, you can make something pretty timeless. 
Uh, what about you, Dustin? What uh, Where are you at with Tokyo Story? You've seen this a couple of times, I've right? It, I've seen it a couple of times. I've taught it a couple of times in uh, my film and theology course, gotcha. and yeah. uh, students hated it. And so, I mean, I kind of, again, I get the hate. Um, I was going to point out, you know, we uh, sort of rescreened through that little scene there. And what it is, um, the camera isn't moving in that scene, but the editing is much yep. faster. I was counting it off as I was watching it because I, I, was, I wasn't sure either. And it's about a four-second or five-second ASL average shot length in that sequence, which is about seven and a half, eight seconds faster than, than the else. rest of the yeah. movie. Mm. So it does feel incredibly dynamic because it is so paced and stayed and slow, and the camera just sort of remains, and the camera remains in these sort of empty spaces throughout. Well, you know, which is another one that does it is that kind of that closing moment where we're on Grandpa, and it's kind of going back and forth between him and the boat mm-hmm. fairly quickly. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of going, and the boat is like moving through the frame. A lot quicker than we have seen things yeah. move in the frame throughout the film, and so I mean, it finds a, a different way to find its dynamism uh, that way. And again, I think that is sort of the wisdom of Ozu. And I do think, I, again, I think it's a good movie. Uh, I do think it does speak to universal themes, as you were saying, Arthur. I think it's um, formally more interesting than anything in terms of style. Um, and for me, though, I would say. If I were a director, and I'm, not, I'm neither a director nor a critic, and so I'm an academic, which I guess I technically go into the category of some of those people that they might ask uh, to uh, fill out polls on this. But as um, not a filmmaker, if I were, I wouldn't find a lot of inspiration from this movie because it doesn't do the kind of things I like to see done mm-hmm. uh, with the camera. It's not, it's, it's not the style that I would pick. Um, but it is um, an excellent use of the style because, again, I, c- I can recognize game when I see game. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a different style of play. Uh, and even though I don't care for the West Coast offense, if that's the co- if they're doing it well, great. Well done. And to use a football metaphor there. Sure. And, and this is this is a different kind of uh, way of attacking uh, story and doing it well. What's the triangle? The triangle, the triangle defense. Oh, tri- you're yeah, taking yeah. it basketball. Sure. Just, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah if you're, well, if you're not playing motion, you're not playing basketball. But that's a. I have strong opinions about this. Um, But that being said, um, the the way in which Ozu is able to use these very, what Paul Schrader calls sparse means, uh, to accomplish his themes, to run us through the narrative, and to help us think about the emptiness of the space and how it is only temporarily populated by its human characters, and that there's a certain... um, eternality of the space I think is kind of brilliant uh, there I think the performances are very very good um, the uh, the character um, Noriko the uh, the daughter-in-law the widowed daughter-in-law is also in um, late spring another Ozu mm-hmm. film and she's very very good uh, in that movie as well and so and that, those two movies kind of bleed together for mm-hmm. me a little bit because Ozu does have a style and sort of a set of uh, occupations and this movie though I think the part of the reason for the unpopular reviews is not a western eastern uh, kind of thing I it's it's a movie for grown-ups it's, I mean I was yeah that's what I meant by like I don't know how mature you are I don't know how much life you've lived if you can't connect to this it, it, it's not sort of white hats and black hats. It's not uh, a story about um, conflict conflict in any kind of sort of natural, traditional kind of sense. It really challenges our like our Western film thinking about the nece- necessity of conflict for a story to happen. Well, that's not even particularly Western. Sure. Or Eastern. I guess that's you true. Know, th- I mean, that, that's that's the thing, is that yeah, we see more of that kind of stuff uh, because these movies do get elevated because of their sort of difference and their sort of I- interest in terms of just doing something different from the East or from Africa or from uh, South America. And so we might sort of meditate on that, but n- truly, it, it, it's just... 
it's a story in which you're you're sort of doing the slice of life kitchen sink kind of I think about British realist drama that does this kind of stuff really really well in the 1960s, mm-hmm. and uh, which is not stylistically the same, but in terms of narrative, it's very very similar. It's just what do you do when you can't pay the bills? What do you do when you've got a wife that you love but she keeps running around? I mean, these are the kind of questions that those movies sort of and there's not a again there there's a couple good speeches monologues throughout the sort of move narrative but for the most part stuff just kind of happens like life happens i've got another one for you from this year that i just caught up with um uh core jefferson's american fiction with mm-hmm. jeffrey wright is you know arthur kind of had this problem with it because it's it's being sold as a satire but it ends up being much more what you're talking about this kitchen sink family drama mm-hmm. um and again very different stylistically mm-hmm. but it is very much about like yeah how do you how do you go on when your family members start dropping dead yeah or you know, your your brother is just like so chaotic and is not any help whatsoever. I'm just mm-hmm. laughing because he's seen the movie. Yeah, it was a really great Sterling K. Brown performance of that. Anyway, uh, yeah, I, I love when a movie is just like, no, this life just happens mm-hmm. a lot. And that's not sometimes that's all that's happening. It's just like and jobs are have a resolving narrative arc. Yes. Right. Yes, exactly. And so um, that lack of resolution, again, I appreciate that. And I like those kinds of stories. And I do, again, appreciate the style by which um, Ozu achieves it. It's not my favorite style to do. And so I, I do find the movie a bit slow as well. I mean, I understand a, a viewer who is put off by mm. its pacing. And you could tell the story in other minimalistic kinds of styles. And But, you know, I like Bresson. I, I like yeah. Tarkovsky. And so um, I'm okay with that. But, I, again, I'm just – I'm sort of – less inspired um by it if i if i were wanting to get a camera myself and go tell a story i wouldn't i wouldn't pick that up for that so i know what you mean i'm right at i think we're both at four and a half yeah um and i i think in my syllabus i'll i'll kind of crack up and maybe what what i like about this but what it's lacking for me to mm-hmm. go go to five that i think other films in this style have but that those those questions for me are cup of tea questions mm-hmm. this is more taste and so it doesn't it doesn't have quite the 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 flavor bouquet that i like to have it has other flavors that are good that i appreciate but they're just not what i go for i would rather have my tea made up a little different so um, that's what I guess I would have to say about Tokyo Story. It's very, very good. I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, it's deservingly here on the list as far as I'm concerned. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts. We're generally pro, which um, is not surprising considering the uh, heft that this um, particular movie brings to the film conversation. We're now going to do the next thing, which is uh, a little game we like to play called Expanding the Syllabus. And Arthur's going to explain to you what that's all about. Uh, Expanding the Syllabus is a thought experiment where we, the host, assemble an academic course or module within a course based around the Sign viewing for the week and adjacent texts uh, from books and articles to tangentially related films and stories. That's right. So we're going to teach this in a class like you might. And so, um, and I have, I'm not doing that particular thing, by the way. I'm just going to not. Um, but no, you're I, not going to pitch the class you've already taught. Out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's too, too easy. I'm not, I took the easy way out. Guys, I do, I do the work for you, dear listener, because <laughs> I love you. Do you? Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes I just kind of sandbag it, too. Um, Arthur, do you have a syllabus prepared? Yeah, I, I mean, I think for me, the thing I was kind of picking up on was the, I mean, I'm not picking up on is pretty obvious, but it is the idea of the morning trip or the going home, mm-hmm. um, which becomes kind of part of the story here. And I was thinking of children going back home to reckon with their, usually their family and the grief and the trauma that goes along with that. And this really kind of becomes a thing of the indie drama, uh, indie dramedy, I think as well. Well, we also, to put it in like a noir context, we just had it in Long Day's Journey in the Night, right? 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, and so I think uh, I think we're going to start with Garden State. Nice. Uh, Zach Raff's uh, directorial debut, uh, feature debut there, um, which sees a, a man returning home uh, after his mother's death. To man in scare quotes there, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's fair. As uh, so, so our good uh, JD uh, has to go home. Um, and Turk's not waiting for him there. Uh, from there, we're going to talk about Sean Levy's This Is Where I Leave You, uh, which has a great ensemble, but... Uh, a bunch of people have to gather to sit Shiva uh, and in doing so they have to reckon with all of the family drama and family dynamics that are taking place. And it's a great ensemble that comes together for that uh, with Jason Bateman, Corey Stoll and others. A bunch um, of wasps sitting Shiva. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, and it's a, it's a pretty fun time. Uh, I enjoyed uh, that one. Um, I've heard that's good, though. Yeah, yeah it's a good little time. Uh, it's just such a fun ensemble uh, mm-hmm. to put together that uh, some fun stuff comes out of it. Uh, we'd also talk about uh, Elizabethtown. Uh, Cameron Crow. Sure, uh, we got to talk about Manic Pixie Dream Girl probably from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah, you've already done Garden State. Yeah, yeah. but uh, all these obviously are focusing the children, right? And uh, Tokyo Story is giving us something much different, which is focusing that po- from the parents' angle and then that kind of relationship. And mm-hmm. so I think that's where we would end is with a movie called Big Fish. I, I think Great is a good pick. place to take this, nice, uh, which is really focused on the dynamic of that relationship and reckoning with that life and everything that has come along with that. I think. I think Big Fish is a really interesting compliment to Tokyo's story, mm-hmm. and so I think that's a fun place to go with this. In terms of recency, I might, I thought maybe you might mention Blow the Man Down, um, since we love that movie so much, and it's sort of the same kind of thing. I right? didn't think about it because they're already at... Yeah, I mean, it's, that is part of reckoning with the, the mom and, yeah, and everything, but I wasn't really funeral. thinking about that as... Yeah, because they're not returning home. Yeah, I, was, I didn't have that element of it, so I just, it wasn't in my mind, I don't sure, think. Sure. But yeah, that is part of it. Yeah, it's very, very fun. Okay, very good. Thank you very much, Arthur Gordon. Uh, Mr. Dalton Stewart, do you have a syllabus with which to delight us? Yeah, I'm the sandbagger today. We took the low-hanging fruit. You've already referenced um, uh, Mr. Uh, oh my God, Schrader, uh, Director mm. Schrader. Uh, also, also, Schrader. Yeah, also author Schrader, right? Mm-hmm. Very famously, Paul Schrader uh, wrote the book on transcendental film. He's literally. a smart critic as well as a good director. You, they make a couple of those, you know, mm-hmm. from time to time it happens. You know who's another one uh, is uh, Park Chan-wook. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 You're going to say Jean-Luc Godard. Well, yeah, obviously. That's one most folk. people know about. Yeah. yeah, the French guy, the French directors turn, or critics turn directors. Like Guillermo del Toro's one, too. Oh, know? did he work yeah. as a critic a uh, little bit? He, he wrote a, um, a Spanish book about Hitchcock. That's awesome. Yeah. So anyway, the, the big book that we're talking about is Paul Schrader's Transcendental Style and Film, Ozu Brisson Dreyer. Um, and, and obviously he, he talks about other folks like uh, Tarkovsky uh, and um, some of the other sort of notable names in this style throughout the book. Um, but what it's getting at is that most films, again, the the thesis posited by the book, uh, the, the style of psychological realism, which is sort of one of the dominant mm-hmm. styles of film, uh, is is very different from this sort of transcendental style that uh, Brisson, Dreyer, and these other guys bring out. Uh, and it's more of a spiritual state. It's got this austere camera work. Um, the acting is very devoid of like big showy choices. Uh, and the editing is like, you know, very matter of fact and, and without comment. That's sort of the, the big key points of, of like this style versus, you know, more conventional film styles for, for my money. And what Dustin was kind of alluding to, I do like it better in something like First Reformed. And, you know, possibly that's because that's, you know, more of a issues of our times movie, mm-hmm. obviously. Right. Because it is so much about climate change and sort of. <laughs> the existential despair that comes with our, our changing world. Um, and it's so that a 21st century immediacy, immediacy adds something obviously. But the thing that 
for me really brings it over the edge is it uses its very sparse camera work. It's, it's sort of slow tone to surprise you more often. Mm-hmm. There are more beats in the film that go a little more showy, go a little bit broader. Uh, the camera goes a little crazy or we, we kind of get like a montage of images that are kind of removed from the rest of the film. Uh, so again, when uh, Schrader is working in this style himself uh, recently with things like uh, Master Gardener, um, First Reformed, and um, the Card Counter. And Card Counter and Master Gardener are a little less in the style. They are. They're more of his crime movies. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But they've still got like notes of it for sure. sure. Uh, but you're right. They're, they're much more like his crime movies. It's, it's definitely operating in a different milieu, but still kind of still the lonely protagonist, right? The journaler, the diary guy. Uh, but for me, for my money and first reformed, like the the sort of flights of fancy that the, f- the film goes on from time to time are what really tie it all together for mm-hmm. me. And I don't know if you kind of feel similarly about I, your your like of transcendental style. I, I do. And I, I well, I mean, of his, you know, I like Dreyer. I was going to say Dreyer, uh, Passion of Joan of Arc was Passion another one I was going to cite. Great movie. Um, and again, a lot of that's in the faces. And I and the, the sparseness really is in set direction or set design in mm-hmm. that particular film. I think the sort of uh, premier example he's got is Bresson. Mm-hmm. Um, and Robert Bresson does, you know, we, we watch to Ohazard, I think in um, not Shocktober, Anti Trash last year. That's right. Yeah, just just right. Classic Shocktober marathon. Well, you know, the, that poor donkey. Um, but um, Diary of a Country chainsaw. Priest and A Man Escaped mm-hmm. are really, really uh, great examples of the kind of thing that he's talking about. And I think both of those movies also like what Schrader does with First Reform. Do a really, really good job of letting something. Something kind of take place. There, there, there seems to be a bit more drama in the mundane in mm, those films than there is in Tokyo Story. The, uh, Ozu really just denies us the sort of big dramatic thing. Even when people kind of lose their minds a little bit and get a little angry, it's, it's always very, very restrained. restrained. Yeah. Well, and that might be a, a factor of the culture sure. too, right? It might, yeah, it might, it might be a real knockdown drag out for for the Japanese. Yeah. I don't know. I wondered that during the scene where uh, Noriko is like kind of having a breakdown and is trying to keep the smile up. Like mm-hmm. it, was, it was a very interesting performance. I see why you like her so much. Uh, I'm, I'm sure she's also good in Spring Awakening, too. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Didn't mean to. No, no. It's, yeah. But uh, no, I think I, I really do like that style. And I do think the spirituality of it all. Um, spirituality in terms of your thinking. Not so much um, religious questions per se, but the sort of humanistic questions, hu- um, authenticity questions, um, and morality questions. Yeah. Like, like what it, what it, what is good, and how, and am I, mm, mm. and how can I be better? Um, and so, I mean, in terms of the religious language, I do think these films are movies about repentance, the lack thereof, or the possibility thereof. And uh, considering the track one is on, and and, and again, repentance in, in terms of change of direction, not so much as a uh, uh, sort of legal um, yeah. it, well, dealing thinking, with sin. Yeah, I was thinking especially like with your previously mentioned Al Hazard from last our last anti trash marathon. I think when you know our character, the donkey, um, is sort of the observer as opposed to the camera. It mm-hmm. adds something, right? And you talk about there being a little bit more drama in the action. Yeah. And that story is much more about characters trying to change or having changes of circumstances, right? Whereas this is doing something entirely different. Yeah. It is observing a much more quiet 
chain of events. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you teach this? Obviously, you're not going to tell us how you've previously taught. Well, or maybe if you can quickly, could you tell well, us no, how you previously I think, used it? Uh, the way I, well, I, what, what you're doing right now, the oh, transcendental you just styles. Did the transcendental yeah, style. okay, I, I assign that book and we talk about achieving spiritual state through film, film as a film watching as an act of meditation. Uh, yeah, maybe and, another good thing to cite here would be the Josh Larson book, uh, mm-hmm. Prayers, Movies as Prayers. Movies as Prayers, which is also a book I've taught in that class. Um, the most recent version of the class, I taught that book um, mm-hmm. two cl- t- times ago is when I last used transcendental style I, I pulled out the ozu because they hated me uh <laughs> they were they were very very unhappy with me i get it it's it's difficult yeah it, it is if you are used to something showier or flashier mm-hmm. which i think we all are especially you know modern film it's it's a different kind of set yeah absolutely it is so what i thought i might do is because ozu, ozu is the high luminary in the other japanese auteurs and by other japanese auteurs i mean uh during the sort of mid-century period and uh this sort of uh, high output time in terms of hollywood french british uh film production after the war uh, where these industries are sort of coming back and really doing a thing that's uh, kind of impressive and so um the obviously the major luminary is one akira kurosawa um and uh, if Kakira Kurosawa is your exposure to Japanese filmmaking, no, he's not. Uh, that's the first thing I might say um, because Interesting. he's a very, very Western style filmmaker. He he makes well, he makes westerns with swords. Yeah, is what he makes, um, and that's the the kind of it, John Ford is sort of his major sort of touchstone as an influence in his filmmaking. Well, style. Sometimes he's doing Shakespeare, sure, and yeah, which, which is also Western, right? Yeah. And so, th- and and even then, I think Rand's kind of a Western. I mean, you know, the way uh, he uh, the horseback riding and whatnot mm. um, that that drives through that film um, and well, and to genre fight even further. It's, he makes a lot of action movies. Yes. Yes. And that's what he does. He makes action movies. And uh, Ozu, on the other hand, does comedies and melodrama. And that's kind of his brain. He's more like if he was like an American filmmaker, Douglas Sirk, without the style in terms of narrative would be a closer um you know, those Rock Hudson, Doris Day mm-hmm. movies, um, All the Heaven Allows and that kind of stuff would be something more akin uh, to the kind of movie, but with less sentimentalism um, in, in Ozu. But I wanted to think about the other sort of major um, filmmakers. So Ozu is one that people don't get to. And so that's the first one to go to. And, and again, he's a top one on the list because I think he's very influential, very, very powerful uh, and probably the best known second to Akira Kurosawa. And then I might have him watch some um, Kenji uh, Mitsuguchi uh, as well. Ugetsu is a good film uh, to turn in there uh, for that. And Kenji is much more um, Douglas Sirk in that sense. He is much more high melodrama. He is much more high sentimentality and emotionalism. And uh, that's, um, uh, I think, worth taking a look at. And then someone else who's doing some action cinema as good at times as Kurosawa, but less known, is Hiroshi Iganaka, uh, who did the Samurai trilogies. Um, Miyamashi Miyamoto uh, is the first one. And it's probably the strongest of the three films, although I like all three films uh, in that Samurai trilogy um, from Iganaki. Inagaki. So I apologies already. Uh, we already apologize at the top of the show. I've probably already done the thing. But taking a look at those three directors in like a world cinema survey or a Japanese cinema sort of specific thing. Obviously, we can get in the 20th century later on and we can talk about Takashi Miyake. We can talk about. I was about to ask yeah, about Miike if you'd get to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could talk you could talk about the guys at Ghibli. Um, sure. So, I mean, there's 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 lots of other places where you could go. Um, but uh, this particular moment is a pretty high output 
Philip Moman, uh, with a number of auteur directors with uh, quite a bit of power and influence in Toho and some of the other major studios there in Japan. And uh, thinking about that industrial period uh, alongside Hollywood and its similarities and differences, I think would be worth taking a look at. And then, again, those those auteurs you don't think about because people don't talk about in American cinema. They don't talk as much about uh, Jacques Turneau or Douglas Sirk or um, uh, Nicholas Ray is quite a bit of play, but um, he's not a part of a sort of daily conversation in film studies. And th- th- these filmmakers are as interesting and as unique voices in cinema in American cinema um, that we don't really deal with. And I would like to look at some of these other Japanese voices that were very, very powerful, very, very influential, but mm-hmm. maybe a little less well-known um, because, again, the educational purpose would be exposure to yeah. more voices. So that's how I would go about that. Nice. So fun times, fun times. There you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got much longer, and I believe now, oh, now, is the time we get down to business. As we begin with music that does not fit with this film at all. Uh, That's right. Um, I want to begin with an observation from Mark Cousins, uh, because we have been talking about style quite a bit. And uh, there's a provocation that Cousins makes in his uh, his book and also in his uh, extremely long 20-part um, TV series, The Story of Film, uh, in which he contests that the style of classical Hollywood is not classical at all. We call it classical, and we by that... Boardwell must mean old or standard or, you know, standardized in some sort of sense. Mm. Um, But he goes on to say that the uh, style of classical Hollywood is actually romantic. It's a romantic style. It's not uh, romantic Hollywood cinema. Mm. It'd be a better way to to term it because it is in terms of romance, in terms of adventure, roman, the Bildung's roman, the sort of uh, genre of uh, novel writing. And uh, whatever that adventure is, whether it's a, ro- uh, a love ro- uh, romance or a, uh, you know, get the treasure from the pirates kind of romance or defeat the enemies at the Alamo kind of romance. Those are all sh- romance in that sort of traditional kind of senses. And that classical um, filmmaking is much more formally interested in symmetry and in structure. And um, that one of the things that we see in classical Again, I'm using the word romantic Hollywood filmmaking. Mm. One of the things we see is really kind of a strong asymmetry. The way that third act really cooks, the way that second act tends to bog down, the way that first act really just blazes in with you as you introduce those first characters. And a classic, a classical structure proper would have a much uh, more even hand in its story. The, the, the arc would be much smoother if it's an arc at all. It would be a, a slow-moving plateau upward, perhaps, or downward. But it wouldn't have that same kind of moving. And then the structure itself of the, of the again, the very, very static frame and the way in which um, grids and frames and blocks and symmetry is simply just used. There's our moving shot, isn't it? Um, oh, yeah. Following there. Um, and so, yeah, uh, that kind of style then would be um, much more classical in that sense. And so um, I, 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 I tend to agree with Cousins. I think we might need to avoid using the word classical to describe studio area Hollywood and uh, might want to think about rejiggering the term to romantic cinema. Well, while we're kind of 
getting definitional definitional and talking about sure. stuff. Why don't you, since you know more and have read the book, why don't you talk a little bit about transcendental film versus psychological realism and sort of these styles again? Where, where how do how do these other things fit in? So psychological realism, the choices in terms of lighting, staging, uh, production, you know, to set design and camera movement are all going to be indicators of what's going on in the mind of a character. I mean, a great example is the uh, the tracking zoom. Uh, that that Hitchcock very much popularized, very very famous uh, sequence of that in um, Jaws mm-hmm. with Brody, where you see the camera tracking towards the character while it's also uh, there's they're sliding back the the focus to zoom as well, and it moves the background as it as well as moving the main character in focus. I was gonna think think one uh, similar push it real fast push in uh, Scorsese loves to do you know somebody rips a line of coke or something mm-hmm. you know, right right up and on them, and so that's that's psychological realism, and so the the camera is not giving you the realistic point of view that you might have as you were just sitting in the room with the characters as they did the things that they were doing, but you get the camera to move or the lighting to change or the score to reflect what is going on psychologically with the character. So when a character gets sad, the piano begins to play in a minor key up there in the higher register. When things get scary, you pull out the violins and they start screeching a little bit. You know, that, that that's all psychological realism. And so the psychology of the characters, um, most most often the protagonist, kind of defines what lights are used, uh, what how much or how little set design there is, mm-hmm. um, the, the the speed of the editing and the movement of the camera. Does that make sense? And so that's that. Um, as opposed to a transcendental style, where you are called to within your own psyche, within your spirit. I guess you might have to say this is spirituality tied into this. Yeah, you, you, are, you have you, to find the meaning. The the movie calls you to meditate and move beyond. Um, it's sort of like the Eastern Orthodox um, practice of praying with icons. You don't pray to an icon; you pray through an icon. You use the icon as a way to move beyond it to um, the sort of uh, metaphysical reality of a heaven beyond. Right. You got to let your eyes unfocus so you can see the sailboat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's a good example of that. You know, those uh, what are those? Um, I forget what they're called. Magic image. Uh, yeah, something like, something like I'm that. I'm just seeing Ethan Suplay and Mall Rats just like staring, <laughs> just like, <laughs> losing his mind. I gotta see the dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, that's that's the difference. And so yeah, the the text is not the end. The text is the means to the end, mm-hmm. or the the film itself in transcendental filmmaking, as opposed to psychological realism, where the the filmmaker the the the, the actual cinematic you know um accidents uh, again i'm using all this theological language but that's what that is what gets you there that is itself it's, it's transubstantiation instead of some sort of um consubstantiation you know is what it would be there so oh yeah 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 i just figured it'd be nice to have you lay it out and again you know most of the, the romantic or classical whichever label you want to use films you were describing of, of are kind of in this mode of trying to depict what's going on in the mind of I mean the yeah the monster chiller music when when Frankenstein walks up the stair the the yeah. sort of uh the strong shadows in German um expressionism mm-hmm. right which is I mean sort of ultimately psychological realism yeah. right yeah, yeah and then uh that is uh, but it's in that sense German expressionism or even surrealism goes beyond kind of a general dedication to reality yeah and so so um, what what Hollywood cinema tends to do then is to give us a, a, a psychological 
view without breaking the wall of the artifice, right? Without without heightening the artifice of the filmmaking itself to, to, to make sure that you never think to yourself, oh, they've made this stuff up like you might see in Caligari with all these painted sets yeah. um, to show the light and the shadow. Or to go with something that's like you know, something we discussed last year, uh, the John Wick franchise, something mm-hmm. that's like very outside the realm of reality, but is, is also very grounded. Yeah. yeah. And sort of trying to put you in the, the world that they made up, but mm-hmm. is, is signaling, Hey, we made up a bunch of stuff for you. Mm-hmm. Sort of a different thing. So let's, let's get back into transcendental film. Let's kind of talk about like the, the virtue. And I may, I'm, I'm loading the language here by saying the virtue, but the, the virtue of a film that, that asks this much of you mm. that doesn't hand it all to you on a plate. Well, I think it is a virtue. Um, I, I think psychological realism is a virtue unto itself as well. Sure. You know, and then so I mean, I think that's a better way to, to sort of make sure we're being fair here. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, we're not we're not picking a side. Yeah. As term in terms of style. I here. guess the side I'm picking is frustration with the one star reviews. But yeah. at the same time, I'm with you. I do understand. Mm-hmm. Like it is it, it is a lot. Not a lot. It's a lot in how little it is, right? Sure. It a- it asks a lot of you because it doesn't give you much. Mm-hmm. And uh, I-, I guess the virtue here is that you will. Well, it's it's the virtue of doing your own homework instead of having your classmate do it for you. I mean, which just sounds really, really trite and really kind of condescending. But I mean, I think that is the thing that that it does is that you have to work for it. And having worked for attaining the goal of understanding, then it is it is more yours than that which is given to you in psychological realism. Mm. That makes sense. Oh, yeah. I like that. I I think you can possess that which is given to you. Yeah. I I mean, I, I think you can possess well, Citizen Kane, which is going to give you the thing. We're going to watch the movie for too long. Citizen Kane gives you what you need. and It tells you what the movie's about. Yeah, and, and there's no doubt, right? Well, and, it, and it's got a strong point of view. It is making a case against a real person mm-hmm. in many ways. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so, I mean, it gives you that thing. And that, 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 in ter- that of course, can be possessed, but it is that which we possess cheaply. We, we hold less dear. And so what Transcendental Film gives us, rather, is something that's much harder to apprehend. But in the apprehension, the possession is much stronger and, uh, again, is more dear to us, is more cherished. And so when you when you learn the lessons of grief and love and how you ought to be treating your parents from this, as opposed to meet the Fockers, um, which, you know, gives you something similar Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, narratively related anyway. I mean, there's some slightly different nuances to the messaging there, I think, in that movie. But it gives you something similar. But because you have grasped it with that effort, mm. um, it, it you internalize it more. And it's more likely to be, well, enlightening uh, or transcend, trans, transcendent. Right. And so the, I, I think that's the virtue. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that was a really good way to kind of articulate what's going on in these types of films. Um, I guess we should talk about this film more specifically instead yeah. of kind of in broad terms of, of the style. Well, I think one of the things that we, we might rebuff the most in this film is its message. And I, I, I think about this a lot because clearly the father, the father is a um, Ozu surrogate. Uh, mm-hmm. Ozu is a famously um, alcoholic. Um, just if you go to Ozu's grave right now, you will find bottles of whiskey. On, gotcha. on, on, I mean, he was. People are taking care of him in the afterlife. <laughs> That's Good. right. And so, I mean, there, there. You know, if you need, and if you need cheap hooch, you can rob Ozu's grave, mm-hmm. and uh, you will find many, many bottles um, there almost any time you would go there, uh, which is a fun fact. He also lived with his mother. 
um, his whole life. Um, he stayed home, um, never moved out as a bachelor, and uh, took care of his mom. Mm-hmm. And so the messaging... Do we know if he's like a confirmed bachelor in that way? Uh, we don't know. We don't know. Okay. I, we, I, we think not. Okay. But we don't know. Okay. I'm just curious. It's yeah. Not, not like a, a Leonard Bernstein where it's kind of like well-documented after the fact. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. No, it, it, it seems to be that there are questions that we will never have answers to at this point unless somebody's got something. Somebody's got some diaries something or some in a, letters. Yeah, in, a, in a war chest in their house and it's going to turn up later. But okay. I'm just curious. It's been long enough that if it was going to turn up, it probably would have by now. Okay. You know, it's kind of where we are at. But anyway, so lived at home and obviously like that makes his way into this film. Yeah. And, and well, and, and to an extent, his mother was his surrogate wife in many senses. Like, um, she just took care of him and he took care of her as she aged. And, and so the movie's got this messaging of you have a responsibility to your parents. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, we, it, it's interesting because obviously parents are the worst. Um, I'm one of them. Uh, and well, they're terrible. We, 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 we don't know what we're doing and we make mistakes. And even when we're well-intentioned and I, and I do think that father and the mother are both, um, framed to be as good people. Yeah. They're, and, they're easy to want to take care of. The yeah. film is very on their side, but the movie doesn't hide their mistakes either. Obviously Shinge is, is very, very angry about, um, past behavior from dad and we can just imagine what kind of horrors you know and abuse that she might have seen uh in all of that and then to see him go out on a bender and get arrested and be brought back by the police is you know uh, triggering it brings up those kinds of things and it's interesting because if you look i mean the internet's discourse right now is all about how it's okay to sever yeah i mean that is the conversation it is it is it is all and it and it is okay to sever uh especially when there has been sort of horrific abuse but that that conversation sort of lends us to because it's friends not family it's you know we have yeah we've moved out we no longer have any obligation we don't know we don't owe each other there was a line like the throwaway line like that in the um the boat kids movie that Clooney made Oh, you boys on the boat. Yeah, we don't we don't know each other or anything. Yeah, 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 you know, this yeah. this sort of which sort of is reflective of that kind of idea. Yeah. And um I, I do think thematically this movie has a difficult time hitting. Um because part of what Ozu seems to think is that, you know, it doesn't matter. There's a lot there's a lot of water under the bridges, mm-hmm. but um these people kept you alive. Mm. You know, I mean, without I mean, obviously horrendous abuse, you should never reinvite abusers. You know, well, and all we don't really get a lot of context on what the childhood was like, other than that he would come home blackout, yeah, and get, have to be put to bed fairly right. often. It doesn't seem like it got violent or weird or anything. Yeah, like doesn't, it, doesn't, maybe just negligent or negligent, yeah, negligent's which is its own kind of abuse for sure. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, like obviously, she's understandably like recoiling from like mm-hmm. a cop bringing her elderly f- drunk father home with some guy she's never met. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, the, the film is definitely like not going to say that these characters don't have foibles. I guess grandma is kind of free of, yeah, she seems to be saintly. Yeah. You know, and her daughter calls her fat, which is just like a wild mm-hmm. moment. At the beginning. Weird yeah. meanness. Yeah. yeah. You know, here's, but you're right though. The film does ultimately say like you owe these people something. Yeah. And sometimes it takes, we being... really, and generationally we really rebuff that. We really recoil at that. Yeah. You know, I'd say I, that's probably a, I mean, definitely knowing, uh, what I do understand about Japanese culture, that definitely seems like a big cultural thing, right? Though. Sure. And that it shows that sort of modernist element. shift as well. That's yeah, going yeah, on yeah. in the mid century yep. there. Well, the thing that I'm interested in, and again, I'm, my grandparents will don't understand podcasts, uh, and if they did, they probably wouldn't listen to Tokyo Story. So I'm comfortable talking about this candidly. Um, they're very resistant 
to receiving help or care or oh, attention sure, sometimes, sure, sure. especially yeah. from my mom, uh, you know, their their daughter. So it's it's an interesting dynamic we have with like the American baby boomer, who mm-hmm. is such a individualistic, self assured type. Generally speaking, if we if we're gonna buy into generational cohorts for a second. Um, I'm just kind of interested in like our, our current aging population here in the States. And I don't know, I didn't really get into gerontology when I was studying sociology, but I was, uh, you know, kind of vaguely interested in it because of, you know, there was some crossover between the disciplines. And I think there is an East West split there as well. Mm, yeah, yeah. In terms of just that value, because, yeah. um, that, that generation that's coming up, they would be, I guess they would be not quite boomers. I mean, they would be, they'd be 10 years too old at the least. You're talking about in this film? Yeah. In this I mean, film. They'd be sort of the greatest generation yeah. or even a little older yeah yeah because i guess technically their kids are you know the ones who were in their prime during the war would be mm-hmm. the greatest generation i mean so this is 53 so then she's 68 so i mean she's born in the 18, 19th 19, century yeah 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 or 20 like 1880s yeah, 19, yeah. 1880s 1890s, 1890s yeah. yeah so that's a kind of a similar dynamic to what we have going on right now i mean there's going to come a time i've been thinking about this a lot lately the three of us are going to be weird for having been born in the 20th century yeah it's it's not, already weird it's not that it's far already away. weird yeah when, when we, you hear students go yeah in the 1900s and they're talking about the matrix yeah yeah the first 21st century movie this old movie that came out in 2005 yeah i just hate I, them all it's so funny it's God. so 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 frustrating. nothing I, I i mean yeah nothing makes me feel older than somebody saying in the 1900s <laughs> like yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's only reserved for centuries I wasn't alive in. Yeah. Right. 1800s. Yeah. yeah. Everything else is, you 1995. know, 1995. The 1920s. <laughs> yeah. You're just the 20s, the 30s. Well, you, can talk the about the early, you can talk about the early 1900s. No, you can't. Yeah. You know. That's weird. <laughs> I think, no, I get, I get what Arthur's saying. Even when yeah. I was a kid, it would be like the teens, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. You wouldn't say the early 1900s. It's still of a time. Yeah. No, it is like mm-hmm. another century. Yeah. In a big way. Um, and that, yeah, that is sort of, you know, what we have here and what we see especially as we become more reliant on technology for the regular flow of commerce and living, you see generations getting left behind both in this film and in our current context. Mm-hmm. It's like, it, that's just, that's I part mean, of the ball game. Dress is part of the uh, signal for that as well. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're sort of tendency for more traditional dress uh, as opposed to the kids who are much more wearing more Western modern clothes. Yeah. 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 yeah you're so right to point that out. There's really good costuming and mm-hmm. throughout this actually. Um, I'm, I guess we can, we, we've kind of alluded to this. The big dramatic incident is that grandma dies Yeah, uh, right after the trip. Yeah. Um, I, I guess the things plot wise worth hitting on is just sort of the haphazard nature with which everybody's planned this trip. Nobody's really thought through having mm-hmm. mom and dad over. Yeah. Nobody's thought about where they're going to stay and how they're going to be integrated into their usual schedules for this trip. And so they just kind of get shuffled around between the two living kids uh, and then sent to a spa because they're like, I don't know what the fuck. Maybe send them to the spa. They're old, right? Mm-hmm. They want to they want to relax. That's what old people yeah. like. <laughs> I, and that's that's literally what the dialogue is. It's I mean, so yeah. funny. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, they go to the spa and it's like a hustling, bustling spot for young people. And that mm-hmm. drives them Not crazy. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they don't feel up it at all. all night. And, yeah. Yeah. So it's just nobody knows what to do with them. And the, the moment they're most happy is like going to the park by themselves and then going to talk to their widowed daughter-in-law. Mm-hmm. Well, and that scene with the grandmother and the, and the grandson, you know, playing on the ridge. Mm, yeah, you know, yeah. Is one of those sort of, you know, this is all we want. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're just happy to be with their family. And right? they reiterate that constantly. Yeah. They're like, we're just happy to we be here. We don't want to be a burden. We just want to hang out. Say mm-hmm. hi. Yeah. I want to see some old friends. Maybe. Yeah. If you guys can need to go to work, go to work. We'll be here at dinner time. You know. Yeah, they're so... 
reserved, not reserved, they're so, I chill. They just, they don't want anything mm-hmm. there. I, I would kill <laughs> for some elderly folks in my life. They're a little bit more like this. Yeah, sure, sure. They, they want to be involved. They're not flakes and they are happy to just like go with the flow. Right. They're not, you know, domineering or demanding about what the, what is going to be done. Well, in a more, in a more American drama, they would be coming there and they'd be questioning your choices. Right. Yeah. And they would be saying, Oh, so that's mm-hmm. how you guys run that's this how you household. guys do that now. Yeah. And right. I, I don't know. That's gotta be cultural for sure. But sure. It's also probably, you know, a, t- a consequence of our changing societies, maybe. Mm-hmm. I did think a lot about this being, you know, we're, we're now in the early, the end of the early part of a new century. And it was interesting watching this, you know, mid-century film, especially a, an early post-war film. It's just kind of interesting to think about the state of the world in the early 1950s and like... It's just a time of great changes mm-hmm. as, as, as we've been living economic through. boom for the West and Japan, yeah. you know, for sure. And yeah. so with that comes high speed, you know, I mean, transformation. The, the, the technology itself, just in terms of transportation yeah. and communication, well, they're talking about the trains, right? They're like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe how quick it's fe- it yeah. feels like we're so far apart, but we I'll be know. there tomorrow. Yeah. 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 So it's, yeah, that, that factor of like the way technology sort of impinges on all of our lives and can be, can be a pro can be a con, but mm-hmm. it like, we we're just being pulled along by by forces kind of greater than us at all times and i guess maybe that is one of the things the film is asking you to consider is like you you will be pulled along by your life you're mm-hmm. gonna have less control than you'd like yeah but where you have control you have to exercise it and you've got to make sure the people that care about you know you care about them well and that you have a moral obligation to think about that yeah. like I, you have to think about these things um in terms of succeeding morally in those choices you know, yeah, seems to be the suggestion of the film. It's like, yeah, you've got an option. You can decide what you need to do, but you need to do whatever the right thing is in those situations. Well, to that point, you mentioned, uh, you know, when you came to pick me up today, um, that a lot of people will throw the labels in at this film. Yeah, and you're kind of you kind of rebuff against that. You said. I do, and I, I I think that's I think it's easy, you know, because there's a, there's a sense in which you see this from um, Noriko. Again, I'm terrible at remembering the names. Yeah, Noriko's um, the widow daughter. The widow daughter in law is who yeah. I'm talking about and her sort of acceptance and which is a primary sort of tenet of, of Buddhism in general and mm. Buddhism um, definitely not an exception there and and so people hear that you know she's accepting where she is as a widow and you know not desiring more you know the absence of desire is the thing and so that's the sort of connective dot that a lot of people make to Zen uh, for that and I'm not I'm not going to suggest that that's not there but I think overall thematically the movie's much more um, existential. existential. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. Uh, much, much more existential because it's, it's about authenticity. It's yeah. about living true to yourself, true to your values and doing that, which you care about. And then, uh, um, but with a, again, this sort of superintending morality, I mean, I think Camus would hate this movie because there's a sense in which whether you want to or not, you have an obligation. Mm. Right. Um, but, the exposing the want to people doing what they want and then interrogating those questions. Um, which well, we had the same more of, of, of a piece with Ikiru from Kurosawa. Okay. I, think, I, yeah. I think what's interesting is, especially with Noriko, we have somebody who has to question what they think they want. She has her, her in-laws being like, you've got to move on, dude. You, and she finally is able to admit I am so lonely mm-hmm. and I like, I don't think about your son all the time. And he has to be like, yeah, good, good. Yeah. Good. Thank God. I'm glad you're not. And so it is interesting to the way the, you know, there with age comes wisdom. And Mm -hmm. sometimes you're able to look at life with a little bit more clarity and say to somebody like, Hey, you need to 
take care of yourself. Yeah. You're, you're, you're killing yourself right now. Right. Um, and that because she's doing what she's doing under obligation and yes. that, that's the existentialist piece is that she needs to be more authentically herself. But we're, we're definitely seeing like Shingen, the hairdresser being authentically what she wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and the movie seems to not say anything you want is okay, mm-hmm. but it, it is sort of gesturing towards something more existential. I think in that sense, you know, uh, less than something Buddhist. So let's go ahead and move on to the end of the show where we render a verdict. And what we're going to say, I mean, this is anti-trash and this is sort of like a rote thing that we've got to do, but I, I'd be curious to hear what your justifications are as we say shelf and trash for Tokyo story. What do you say, Arthur? I'm not going to trash Tokyo story. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I see it's, uh, it's value. I'd shelf it. I think, uh, I mean, plenty to, I mean, again, I mean, it hits me very close to home. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I think for that alone, uh, it's worth noting. I don't know that I'd go back to it, Tom, but I think there's a lot of value here and, um, yeah, I think you can do a lot with it. Very good. Very good. What do you say? It's one that I felt much like a, a similarly kind of methodically paced, you know, different decade by a lot. Uh, but another Japanese film, uh, Spirited Away. It was one mm. that I like immediately was like, okay, I'm gonna have to revisit this. Like this, this requires a second view. Now that I kind of know the beats, now that I know its rhythms and sort of the themes, it's it's driving at. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's very shelfable. It just because I think there's it's a dense text. It offers you a lot and a lot to think about, uh, and it is challenging. So you might want to own it to chop it up. And mm-hmm. not, you know, obviously streaming is good too, and it's it's widely available on HBO and Criterion Collection, all these places. But I think it's definitely worth, you know, as a cultural artifact, as a historical artifact, it's you know, worth owning and worth thinking about. Yeah, very good, very good. I would say, I don't know, I'm going to say shelf as well, but it's not it's not a five-star. It's not a movie that I just love or a movie yeah. that I go for yeah. all the time. But Respect I, I, and appreciate more than fawn over. Yeah. If you love Wes Anderson, you should probably watch this movie. If you really liked Zone of Interest, which ca- the camera moves more, but it's at that waist high level most of the time um i think this is a good movie um to be thinking about in terms of that and so if if you're just interested in exercises in film style i think this movie is a uh, is a brilliant sort of um rigorous exercise uh of style and so i think it's worth watching for all of those reasons and so if those things appeal to you i suggest you shelf it as well yeah so there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts on this. Um, Dalton's going to tell you how to tell us we are totally wrong. That's right. If you are one of those people who thinks liking this movie makes us pretentious, you can let us know. Good trash genre cast at gmail.com. That's good trash genre cast at gmail.com for your long form feedback. You can also find us all over the Internet. Uh, I'm Dollywood Squares. He's Dustin Sells or the Dustin Sells. He's the Arthur Gordon or K.A. Excalibur. We're on Insta. We're on Letterboxd. Come find us if you dare. Uh, I don't think I'm the Dustin Sells. You're not. That's right. You're no, the, you sometimes were, I'm Dustin underscore Sells. That's what it is. And sometimes yeah. on like Tumblr, you were Orson Sells. Yeah. But you pretty much retired that, right? I've got Orson um, as my username on Mastodon. I on think. Mastodon. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, if you're if you're a freak like Dustin, want that open source posting, go to Mastodon and see some some polls on it's, Orson Welles films. It's kindler, gentler there. Yeah. Blue Sky's getting a little weird already. Um interesting i'm yeah i'm on threads and blue sky arthur you don't really post which is good and good for your brain um i'm proud of you uh if you want to see what the people we hang out with are making you can listen to the other shows on this network the wheel of uh wheel of randy with dan wade Uh, he's about to put out a christmas special with a bunch of special voice guest talent uh including myself so check that out uh and then of course the praise down with heath and alex a great show uh and if you want to help support this show help us keep the lights on you can go to patreon.com forward slash gtm to find out what's in it for you uh basically free movies 
well, not free movies, but curated selections sent to your house. Or, you know, you can curate something for us to watch for the show. All that info, patreon.com forward slash GTM. Arthur, next week we continue with our second week of anti-trash. What That's film right. is number three on the sight and sound well, We list? tackle the third greatest film of all time when Charles Foster Kane logs on and we discuss Citizen Kane. Oh, he's talking yeah. about posters. The That's four a- decade reigning champion of the BFI until dethroned in 2012. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, truly one of our greatest uh, and most prolific posters, Charles Foster Kane. Yes. We're, we're, <laughs> I can't wait. We're so excited. So you keep watching. We'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time. I'm not sure.